0: Welcome to another UCTV.tv podcast presented by University of California Television. We have Professor Miles Vernier, fellow at All Souls College, Oxford, and I think he needs no further introduction. Professor Vernier? Well, as before, I shall refer to these texts one, two, three to illustrate my points. Now can everybody hear me? No. <laughs> no. Right. Can everybody hear me now? Have I got to operate at this level? Just. Just. Where's the microphone man? Uh, no pH, sorry. Do we need a microphone? There's no pH. The nose, okay. All right, I will uh, I'll do my best and you can, uh, I may not see you without my glasses, so you might have to make noises if you can't hear me. Some people are afraid of dogs. It's very sad, no matter how much evidence I give them, the one particular dog is the most loving soul in the animal kingdom, incapable of harming anyone and wishing only to greet everyone as a friend. Still, for all that, when they come to see me, and the dog's tail starts wagging, they cringe. Suppose I feel sorry for such people and want to help them enjoy, or at least to feel calm with, this most lovable of dogs. To help them, I need a diagnosis of their ailment. Is it that they are not convinced that the dog is friendly? Then I must provide yet more evidence or evidence of a different kind. I must reason with them and use every technique of persuasion I can devise if I can only get them to believe that the dog is friendly, all will be well. Suppose they say, however, that while they entirely accept that this dog is friendly, it frightens them nonetheless. Or suppose they agree it's friendly and swear they're not afraid, yet when they come to the door and the tail wags, they cringe. In either of these cases, a different diagnosis is required. Plato and Aristotle would say that a fear which obstinately remains even when the person accepts that the dog is friendly must derive from a non-rational part of the soul. The obstinacy of the fear proves that there is something within us that holds or entertains a view of the dog which is quite different from the view approved by the reasoning, evidence-weighing side of our nature. But the Hellenistic philosophers, Epicurean Stoics and skeptics all reject the idea of such divisions in the soul. Their doing so is a condition for the confidence with which they propose their programs for a radical reform of the human psyche. Let me explain why a Unitarian psychology is a prerequisite for radical reform. Non-rational parts of the soul can be trained and modified and brought into harmony with reason but they cannot be got rid of altogether. This means that reason does not have a completely free hand to decide what factors should govern our lives. If it's not up to us to choose whether fear and anger will play some part in our lives, it is sensible for reason to think about how to make the best of the materials it has to work with. But the Hellenistic philosophers want it to be an open question which emotions we should let into our lives. Hence, they are bound to adopt a more rationalistic unitarian psychology than their predecessors. And the question I want to explore today is how two of these groups, the Epicureans and sceptics, can explain and deal with the obstinacy phenomenon I have just described. For them, the self is a unitary thing, so the obstinacy must itself be located within the reasoning, evidence-weighing side of our nature. The question is, How can that be? The question is pressing for them because both both the Epicureans and the skeptics promised to deliver us from fear. The story is told in text one. Uh, This is a story about Pyrrho, the founder of skepticism. And the story runs that when his fellow passengers on board a ship were all unnerved by a storm he kept calm and confident pointing to the little pig in the ship that went on eating and telling them that such was the unperturbed tranquil state ataraxia in which the wise person should keep themselves. Epicurus undertook to promote the same state of tranquility ataraxia by removing above all the fear of death and it is obvious that if people may still cringe at a dog when they agree there's nothing to be afraid of, death and a storm at sea are even more likely to remain the object of an obstinate fear which will not go away when reason declares there is nothing to be afraid of. Another thing that interests me about these philosophers is their conception of happiness. They want to deliver us from fear because happiness, in their view, is tranquility, ataraxia, freedom from all emotional disturbance. The happy person, they claim, is one who goes through the storms of life, enjoying, like the little pig, such simple pleasures as may come their way without anxiety or fear for the future. You may think this, many have thought it, a curiously quietistic, unheroic view of happiness. But I want to suggest that the very concept of happiness, as we use it today, originated from the efforts of Pyrrho and Epicurus to recommend the blessings of tranquility. To launch this suggestion, which I should warn you is quite controversial, I begin with a notorious remark of Aristotle's in text two to the effect that children cannot be happy. Um, If one does speak, Aristotle says, of a happy child in the playground, what is meant is that one hopes the child will grow up to lead a virtuous life. This sounds so bizarre that more than one scholar has claimed that the translation is misleading. Whatever Aristotle is talking about when he uses the Greek noun eudaimonia and its associated adjective eudaimon, it cannot be what we mean by happiness and happy. Another line of argument for the same conclusion is the following. Happiness, as we understand it, is in some important sense a psychological notion. It would no doubt be wrong to equate happiness with pleasure or contentment, and there is a distinction to be observed between feeling happy and being happy. But when all is said and done, it is a person's experience of life and how they feel about things that we usually focus on when trying to determine if they are happy or not. But the thing Aristotle most centrally focuses on is what a person does. He equates happiness with virtuous activity, as you can see him doing in text three, when he says that uh, the good of man, which we've already agreed to be happiness, um, must be exor- active exercise of the soul's faculties in conformity with virtue, virtuous activity, is what happiness is. Virtuous activity has of course a psychological dimension for Aristotle holds that to engage in properly virtuous activity, you must enjoy it, take pleasure in the fact that you are doing good and noble deeds. But the capacity for enjoyment is not what children lack. What they in their immaturity do not yet possess is a settled and self-aware disposition to do good and noble deeds because they are good and noble. <coughs> that's, what he, that's what Aristotle means in text two when he explains his remark about children by saying that for eudaimonia, you need to achieve complete virtue. Shall we allow these considerations to persuade us to give up the traditional translation of eudaimonia as happiness? The idea has been proposed. Students of Aristotle are sometimes warned that the great issue to which the Nicomachean ethics is devoted is not after all the nature of happiness, but well-being or flourishing, or the best possible life for a human being. But if we do take this line, as I confess I am sometimes tempted to do, what are we to make of the fact that within Aristotle's lifetime, Pyrrho starts preaching that eudaimonia is tranquility? Tranquility is indisputably a psychological notion, and we need to be able, we need to, be able to make sense of Aristotle and Pyrrho disagreeing about the same thing, the nature of eudaimonia. And it's not just Pyrrho and Epicurus after him who caused the difficulty. Well before Aristotle, Democritus, in text four, is reported to have <clears throat> equated eudaimonia, or in his terms, eusto, well-being, with cheerfulness, euthymia. A solution to the difficulty can be given, I suggest, in two steps. First we should recall an older strand, in our own use of the word happiness, the strand that is sometimes referred to with apologies to Wordsworth as the happy warrior conception of happiness. We can still understand the historian who wrote, happy the people whose annals are blank in history books. Latinists will recall the phrase, Felix qui potuit causas cognoscere rerum, happy the person who's been able to know the causes of things. Christians remember the Beatitudes. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Notice the future tense. In the Greek it's makarioi hoi penthuntes hoti autoi sontai. These people, those that mourn, are certainly not feeling good about their life now. Nor presumably, very possibly, are the people in the history books, or rather the people who are not in the history books, because the history books are blank about that. So that's the first step. The second step is some philological information, which I derive from a rather tedious, but for that reason, most valuable book by C. De Heer on all the different, it collects all the passages in which one of the words for happiness occurs in extant Greek literature in the fifth century and earlier. Originally, before philosophers got hold of the subject, one can see from this book, Eudaimon, like Makarios in the Beatitudes, referred to someone favored by divinity, by fortune, or by some other circumstance. Any number of things could be cited as the reason why someone's life seemed especially favored. Their wealth, their status, their beauty, some special knowledge, their prospects for the next world, or their heroic exploits in this one, and also psychological states like satisfaction and enjoyment could be cited as the reason why someone is Eudaimon. The reason could be anything that the speaker regards as a blessing that makes for an enviable or outstandingly successful life, the kind of life that anyone would like to have. We're now ready for the solution that I'm going to propose, which is to read Democritus when he says eudaimonia is cheerfulness. Read Democritus as conveying, like Jesus Christ and the Beatitudes, a surprising view of who is blessed and why. The great blessing that makes for a favored life is inner calm and cheerfulness. The surprise is the new denotation attached to the old term. Aristotle's denotation, virtuous activity, is new too, but not so radical a departure from prevailing views. After Aristotle, the Hellenistic philosopher's increasing preoccupation with one's inner experience of life is the first stage of a long historical evolution whereby denotation encroached on connotation and eudaimonia, or happiness, became a primary psychological notion. In case anyone in the audience is unfamiliar with the distinction between denotation and connotation, I should explain that, very roughly, the denotation of a word is the things it applies to, the connotation, the meaning by virtue of which it applies to them. Thus, to hypothesize, as I've just done, a long historical process whereby the denotation of the word happiness encroaches on its connotation is to postulate a process whereby psychological states like tranquility start off as one of the things the word could be applied to in virtue of the ancient meaning expounded by this book by De Here, but they end up, these psychological states, as the dominant meaning of the word today. "'I recently heard a conversation between a man and a woman. "'He is a scholar who had just lost the job "'which had been the centre of his life for many years. "'She said to him, "'You are much happier than you were,' "'meaning that he was more tranquil, more at ease with himself, "'despite the loss of his job "'and the uncertainty of his present prospects. Aristotle would allow that he could still be eudaimon, happy, "'provided he'd been so before,' despite the loss of the most valued activity of his life. Aristotle would not, I think, allow that the person could be happier, and he surely would not agree that being more tranquil was a ground for counting someone happier than before. In this respect, Democritus, Pyrrho, and Epicurus are closer to the understanding of happiness that prevails in modern European languages. An understanding, by the way, that should have the consequence that happiness can no longer be uncontroversially the end and organising principle of our ethical life. By the way, a sort of nice halfway position along this story uh, can be found at the moment in Shakespeare's Othello, where Othello is finally convinced that Desdemona has been unfaithful. And he says, I had been happy, Oh, I can see this is a passage about happiness. I had been happy if the general camp, pioneers and all, had tasted her sweet body, so I had nothing known. Oh, now forever, farewell the tranquil mind. So he's saying goodbye to happiness, and the first thing he says is farewell the tranquil mind, farewell content, and then he goes on to the sort of more Aristotelian things. Farewell the plumed troop and the big wars that make ambition virtue, and so on about royal banners and quality and so on. So there are both elements in that speech. Let's now go back to Aristotle's claim about children in text two and try to read them not as evidence that eudaimonia is not happiness but as evidence for what notion of happiness the word eudaimonia conveys in that context and how it differs from the notion or notions of happiness familiar to us now. It is a happiness not yet centred upon one's inner psychology and experience of life. It's a happiness or blessedness due to the presence in one's life of whatever it is that the speaker thinks contributes most to making such a life choice-worthy and enviable. When the speaker is Aristotle, he claims it, that virtuous activity is what, he does, is what does this. Or so he says in the first book of the Nicomachean Ethics. In book 10, of course, he says that a life filled with virtuous activity is very good, but one filled with intellectual theorising is even better. In either case, it's important to emphasise the word life. Part of Aristotle's reason for refusing to allow that children are happy is that children, however promising, are only at the beginning of their lives, whereas to speak of happiness is to speak of someone who's achieved complete virtue in a complete life. When he says at the end of text 2, happiness, as we said, requires both complete goodness and a complete lifetime, that back reference, as we said, refers in fact to text 3, where he ends up saying one swallow doesn't make a spring, nor does one fine day, and similarly one day or a brief period does not make a man supremely blessed and happy. You can only apply the predicate happiness in terms of a life. This is a a difference from modern notions of happiness. We are prepared to compartmentalize happiness in at least two ways. First, we have happy days and our happy times alternating with unhappy ones. We do not restrict ourselves to talking only of a happy life. Second, we are happy about something or in some sphere of activity, as when a person is happy in and with their work, but has an unhappy marriage at home. Neither of these compartmentalizations turns up in Aristotle, nor is either of them at all common to my knowledge in Greek thought generally. I suspect that this difference has a lot to do with the fact that we have, but the Greeks lack, the contrast between being happy and feeling happy. The notion of feeling happy requires one or the other kind of compartmentalization. Feeling happy is at least usually feeling happy about something. Be that as it may, my main point is that the lack of compartmentalization in Greek thinking about happiness is an important clue for the understanding of Democritus, Pyrrho, and Epicurus. When they say that happiness is cheerfulness or tranquility, they are not talking about a mood that might come and go. It's not the cheerfulness of a good chat round the fireside or the tranquility of a walk in the countryside on a summer evening. When in text 8, Timon holds up. Oh, sorry, we're over the page now. All right, we'll come back to the rest. When Timon in text eight holds up Pyrrho as a model of tranquility for us to follow, the tranquility he describes is a spiritual demeanor that permeates the whole of life. See how he says, um, how is it that while you are a man, you conduct yourself easily with calm, always without care, and immovably the same. Again, Democritus in text nine recommends a cheerful outlook on life in general, and he's talking about the way in which your cheerfulness permeates the whole of your life. He says, um, I'll start from the second paragraph, one should keep one's mind then on things in one's power and be quite satisfied with things at hand, taking little notice of those who are envied or admired and not dwelling in thought upon them. One should look at the lives of those in trouble, bearing in mind how mightily they are suffering. In this way, things at hand and at your disposal may well appear great and enviable. Yours will no longer be a case of suffering in soul through desire for more. But he who admires those blessed with possessions and the congratulations of other men, that actually means, it's the verb makaridzain, means those who are called happy by other men because they've got lots of property, and the person who dwells every hour on memory is all the time compelled to plot something new and to throw himself through desire into doing something irremediable and illegal. That's why one must not seek things there. One must be in good spirits over things here, comparing one's own life with that of those doing worst. One must congratulate yourself, I would translate, one must call oneself happy, laying their sufferings to heart on how much better one is doing and carrying on. That's a word for going all the way through life. Uh, and if you do that, you'll both carry on in life with better spirits and you'll ward off some considerable curses like envy, jealousy, and malice. So for Democritus and Pyrrho, no less than for Aristotle, one swallow doesn't make a summer. Happiness is a predicate that applies to someone in respect of their whole life. Such, then, is the tradition in which Epicurus put forward tranquility and freedom from all forms of distress as his formula for happiness. You can see him doing this in text 5, in the second part. He who has a clear and certain understanding of these things will direct every preference and aversion towards securing health of body and tranquility of mind, seeing that this is the sum and end of a blessed life. It's no surprise to be told that Epicurus was a great admirer of Pyrrho's personal tranquility, and that Pyrrho, in turn was fond of quoting Democritus. There was of course disagreement between Epicurus and Pyrrho about how the life of tranquility is to be achieved. This disagreement is in fact my next topic. But the disagreement can usually be seen as a family feud over the best way of keeping up the Democratean heritage. From our present point of view, it's a family feud over the best way to promote a psychological conception of happiness. The nub of the disagreement is this. According to Epicurus, tranquility comes from knowledge. According to Pyrrho, it comes from doubt. A brief study of this disagreement will bring us back to the problem of obstinacy. Both philosophers start by asking, what is the nature of things? Text six, our first question. Pyrrho's pupil, Timon, says, that the person is to be truly happy must pay regard to these three questions. What is the nature of things? What attitude ought we to adopt with respect to them? What will be the net result for those so disposed? Epicurus answers this question with the atomic theory. The way to banish fears and achieve tranquility is to study natural philosophy, learning how to explain the world in atomistic terms. More about this later. Pyrrho replies that the question is unanswerable. According to text 6, all things are equally indifferent or indeterminable, admitting neither measurement nor discrimination. There is no theory to be given, because there's nothing in the nature of things to distinguish a correct account of something from an incorrect. In particular, there's nothing in the nature of things to distinguish good from bad. Text 7, the bit marked fragment 70, Uh, Nothing is by nature good or bad, but these things are decided by men with their own mind. That's a way of saying that the distinctions of value by which most people live in their lives are impositions or projections of the human mind. In themselves, all objects of choice are indifferent. It follows that, in general, there is no objective reason to assert or believe one definite thing rather than its opposite. For instance, text 7, fragment 74, that honey is sweet rather than the opposite, rather than um, bitter. And it follows in particular that there's no objective reason to choose one definite thing rather than another, e.g. honey instead of wormwood. To this bleak situation, the only honest, rational response is an indifference or equanimity that matches the indifference of the things around you. Follow the little pig. Remember, that story was about Pyrrho, and this is Pyrrho's outlook that we are now expounding. Follow the little pig. Stop worrying about what's true or what is good. Give up trying to make sure that your beliefs are true rather than false, or that your choices are for good things rather than for bad. Stop worrying. Give up the futile effort of decision. Text 7, fragment 80, determine nothing. Or, as fragment 72 in text 7 puts it, be without avoidance or pursuit. You can still, like the little pig, enjoy the taste of honey, but if you stop worrying whether it really is as sweet as it appears to be, or as good for you as some doctors say it is, then you can enjoy it in tranquility, the tranquility of an equable disposition towards a world that is itself indifferent to truth and value. I interrupt here to remark that for the Greeks at least, if not for the Romans, the pig is typically an emblem of ignorance, not of greed. Any pig would know, was the say. Hence a skeptic who's totally lacking in knowledge can well take the pig as a model for a life of blissful ignorance. Later skeptics make the same recommendation on different grounds. Pyrrho's position is that the question what is the nature of things is unanswerable because the nature of things makes it unanswerable. In the outlines of Pyrrhonism that Sextus Empiricus wrote some five centuries later, the question is unanswerable not because of anything about the nature of things, but because we find ourselves unable to answer it. The obstacle to the attainment of truth and value is ourselves and the weakness of our cognitive powers, not the world. We have no unassailable criterion for determining how things objectively are, So we find ourselves forced to suspend judgment on every question about the nature of things in themselves. From Sextus' standpoint, the early Pyrenist is a negative dogmatist because he asserts that the world is unknowable. Sextus merely finds himself unable to know it or even to form any definite beliefs about it. This difference between early and later Pyrrhonism is a reflection of the continuing importance of democracy and influences at the earlier period. But that is another story. Once past step one, early and later Pyrrhonists are in agreement about how it is that tranquility is secured by suspending judgment on all questions about truth and value. Look at text 10. Someone who opines that anything is by nature good or bad is forever being disquieted. When he is without the things that he deems good, he believes, to be, he believes himself to be tormented by things naturally bad, and he pursues after the things which are, as he thinks, good which, when he has obtained, he keeps falling into still more perturbations because of his irrational and immoderate elation at having these good things, and in his dread of a change of fortune, lest he may lose them, he uses every endeavour to avoid losing the things which he deems good. On the other hand, the man who determines nothing as what's naturally good or bad neither shuns nor pursues anything eagerly, and in consequence, he's unperturbed." And if you don't care, either way, you're free of all worries. The idea is that once you cease to believe there is any objective reason to choose one definite thing rather than another, you won't want one definite thing rather than another. You won't hope or plan or strive to get it, nor if you do get it, will you be afraid of losing it. If you cease to think anything is objectively good or bad, all hopes and fears, all the urgings of desire, will dissolve and disappear. That is how tranquility comes from doubt. There is, of course, a missing chapter to this story. So far, nothing has been said about how it happens that you cease to think anything is objectively good or bad. Obviously, it's not something you can do at will. Rather, it's the effect of sceptical arguments, which cast doubt on the existence of truth and the objectivity of values, early Pyrrhonism, or on our having any criterion or way of determining truth and value in later Pyrrhonism. Philosophy can thus exert a direct leverage on the feelings. Feelings involve beliefs about good and bad. So by dislodging belief, philosophical argument can free the mind from emotional disturbance or so the Pyrrhonists make out. But what about the obstinacy problem? Suppose we did become convinced on philosophical grounds that there are no objective values. No doubt some people in this room have already been so convinced. Actually, it's an idea that many people nowadays imbibe from the surrounding culture without bothering to go through argument or reasoning. But let us stick with the person who's had the decency to reason their way to scepticism about objective values. It might be rational for them to give up seeking the good and avoiding the bad, but would it not be extraordinarily difficult? Remember that dog of mine. Isn't it clear that when the tail wags, some people are going to feel threatened, no matter what they believe or do not believe? It would no doubt be inappropriate to ask a skeptic to explain the phenomenon of obstinacy. That would be asking for a theory to justify their rationalistic picture of human psychology. But we can ask how the skeptic would help people overcome it. Well, as it happens, there's a story about Pyrrho and a dog, which you'll find in text 11. Once when a dog rushed at him and terrified him, he answered his critic that it was not criticizing him for not practicing what he preached, you see. He answered that it was not entirely easy to strip oneself of human weakness, says this subject, says this translation, but it actually means to strip oneself of one's humanity. Not easy. Um, but... The story goes on. One should, according to Perrault, strive with all one's might against the facts, as it were, the facts of human life, by action or deeds, if possible, and if not, by argument or reason. It's a simple answer to our question. Roughly, it goes like this. Yes, it is difficult to overcome the obstinacy inherent in human nature, but keep trying train yourself by practice to be indifferent, and bolster your efforts by philosophical argument. The rest of text 11 illustrates what practice would amount to, the story that when septic salves and surgical remedies were applied to a wound, he didn't so much as frown. Later Pyrrhonists say virtually nothing about practice, and put all the emphasis on the power of argument. If you're still troubled by disturbing emotions, they say, that means you've not yet properly given up the beliefs and achieved the serenity of perfect doubt. Let's go on arguing so that eventually you will. This contrast between earlier and later Pyrrhonism illustrates the point that Pyrrho himself was less of a philosopher, more of a guru figure, like others in the Democratean tradition. That's why Timon in text 8 sets out to immortalize Pyrrho's personality in literary form so that he can continue to be an inspiring model for future generations. Time and in text 8 compares him to the sun god. And we'll find Epicurus being compared to the sun god a bit later. Now, one person who found Pyrrho's personality inspiring, as I've already mentioned, was Epicurus. In Epicurus, we find a more subtle mixture of guru and philosopher, of practice and argument, and above all, a surprisingly sophisticated account of how the obstinacy phenomenon can be accommodated within a rationalistic picture of mind and feeling. Epicurus' first subtlety is to point out that not every feeling or desire disturbs tranquility. Pyrrho's own model of tranquility, the pig in the storm, went on munching because it was both indifferent to danger and hungry. Accordingly, where Timon in text 7, fragment 71, condemns all desire as evil, which must mean that it disrupts the only positive thing a Pyrrhenius recognizes, which is tranquility, instead of that, Epicurus, building on Plato's account of desire in Republic 8-9, to nine, divides desires into three groups. Now the text for this is text 15, And I've written it up on the board, where some of you, at least, can see it. There are three kinds of desire, those that are natural and necessary, like desires for food and drink, Those that are natural but not necessary, like the desire for roast beef and wine. I'll explain all this in a moment. And desires which are neither natural nor necessary, like desires for crowns and statues. Now, with respect to these three groups of desires, Epicurus recommends that we should learn, and by learning he means partly by practice, partly by tending to argument, we should learn to be content to gratify only the first group, those desires which are necessary as well as natural, where natural means you're born having those desires, you're born with things like hunger and thirst, and necessary means it will hurt if, for example, you don't eat when you're hungry or drink when you are hungry thirsty, and there's some more subdivisions of the ways in which it will hurt, but roughly, roughly they are ones which, if you don't satisfy, you will either die or be unable to be happy. With the natural but non-necessary desires, that's the second group, a recommendation is that we may and should enjoy the satisfaction of roast beef and wine when they turn up at the occasional banquet, but woe betide the person who longs for a piece of steak or a bottle of wine. That intensity is destructive of tranquility and is to be avoided, as are all desires of the third group, the desires for crowns and statues, as it's put in text 15, which means desires for the desires which sing, signal ambition for political power and public esteem. Follow these recommendations, and we will enjoy a simple life sharing bread and cheese and philosophy with a circle of like-minded friends. Now, whatever you think of this ethic as an ethic, it raises an interesting problem in moral psychology. In Pyrrhonism, we have a simple relation between desire or feeling on the one side and judgment or belief on the other. Fear of X depends upon the judgment or belief that X is bad, desire for X on the judgment or belief that X is good, so that eliminating the judgment should eliminate the desire, provided there's no obstinacy, and the judgment can be directly attacked by sceptical arguments showing that nothing is really and truly, in its nature, good or bad. In this scheme, as I noted earlier, philosophy can exercise a direct leverage on the feelings by way of the method of doubt. Compare now Epicurus's third group of desires, the desires for crowns and honours. The judgment in this case would be honour is good and worth having, That judgment or belief is what Epicurus calls the illusory or empty opinion on which the troubling desire depends. Take again, a group two desire for roast beef and wine which has grown disturbingly intense. There's an empty opinion in this case too, he says, in text 15 at uh, paragraph 30. Paragraphs 29 and 30 in that text is the important ones. The empty opinion in that case would be something like a roast beef dinner really is much better than bread and cheese. Now, Epicurus does not offer to counter these desires by sceptical arguments to show that any value judgment of this form is doubtful or mistaken. Nor will the Epicurean hedonic calculus be of much use at this stage. A hedonic calculus yields correct results only if the right values are set on the items to be compared. When the hedonic calculus is used by me, it will only lead me to the right answer if my initial value assignments are correct, which they won't be if I value roast beef and honours high enough to offset the bother of pursuit. So how is Epicurus to undermine my inclination to believe that roast beef and public esteem are goods well worth having? Well worth writing this lecture for. Unlike the sceptic, Epicurus offers knowledge. Knowledge of atomic physics. That's text 14. Uh, Look at that, paragraphs 11 to 12. If we'd never been molested by alarms at celestial and atmospheric phenomena, nor by the misgiving that death somehow affects us, nor by neglect of the proper limits of pains and desires, we should have no need to study natural science. It would be impossible to banish fear on matters of the highest importance if a man didn't know the nature of the whole universe but lived in dread of what the legends tell us. Hence, without the study of nature, there was no enjoyment of unmixed pleasures. Well, atomic physics shows us that death is inevitable, there's no immortality but that this is not an evil for us to be afraid of since at death we cease to exist and therefore cannot suffer or be harmed. Atomic physics also shows us that the gods do not concern themselves with rewarding and punishing human behavior. There is therefore no need to fear that meteorological phenomena such as lightning or storms at sea are the vehicles of divine wrath. But how, this is my question, How, having learnt these lessons of Epicurean physics, do we bring them to bear on the opinion that public honours and good meals are worthwhile to have and pursue? For these are the opinions which must be removed if desire is to be limited and tranquillity secured. How, in other words, can the knowledge Epicurus offers affect us where it counts, where tranquillity must reign? There seems to be a gap between death is nothing important and honour is nothing important. How is the gap to be bridged? This is where the Epicurean psychology takes its most subtle turn. It claims that ambition, the desire for honor, success, or power, is ultimately motivated by the fear of death. Behind the third group desires for crowns and statues stands a quite different desire, the desire to avoid death. Look at text 16a. Text 16 has an A and a B section. Um, The A section comes second, and uh, I start at the beginning of the bit marked A. Moreover, avarice and the blind craving for office, which constrain wretched men to overleap the boundaries of right, and sometimes to commit crimes, this is fostered in no small degree by the fear of death. That's what makes people do awful things in order to get power. Let's call this thesis A. Those of you who can see the board, I've written thesis A up there. Thesis A says, fear of death is the source of much behavior which on the face of it is not concerned with death at all. If you object as ancient critics did object, that death is not what's on your mind when you run for the Senate or the presidency. The Epicurean replies with Thesis B, in general, people are not aware that they are driven by the fear of death. Uh, For that, look at text 18. I've underlined several bits in the English translation. The first bit is the comparison of Epicurus to the sun god, parallel to Pyrrho as a sun god. I'm sure that's a, a literary inheritance. The next bit speaks about people who are in trouble who can't discover what's amiss with them. Then a famous description of people running from one place to another, from one situation to another, hoping that they'll feel better, knowing not each one of them what he wants. And then the last bit, I've underlined, in his sickness, he knows not the cause of his malady. And we were all earlier seen that the cause of his malady is precisely the fear of death. Now, to say that the fear of death is unconscious, something people are not aware of, is not necessarily to say that the fear and the associated thoughts about the awfulness of death must be attributed to a non-rational part of ourselves. It may only be to insist on a distinction between what a person says and thinks they believe and what they really, in their heart of hearts, believe. And for a distinction drawn in these terms, I want to turn to text 16b. Although people often declare that disease and a life of disgrace are more to be feared than death, and say they know that the soul's nature is of blood or of wind, whatever philosophy class they've been to lately, and so they don't have any need of our philosophy, you may be sure that by this, you may be sure by this, that all is vaunted more to win praise than because the truth is itself accepted. These same men, exiled from their country and banished far from the sight of men because of some crime, when they get there, they make sacrifice to the dead, uh, slaughter cattle and dispatch offerings to the gods, and in their bitter plight far more keenly turn their hearts to religion. Wherefore, it's more fitting to watch a man in doubt and danger, and learn how he behaves in adversity. For then, at last, a real cry, the verai voces, is wrung from the bottom of his heart. The mask is torn off, torn off, and the truth remains behind. Where well, I want to take the verai voces there, to mean what he really believes, as opposed to what another part of him believes. It's true that on the basis of this passage alone, you might think, and some have thought, that the contrast between persona or mask and the true voices, the verae voces, was between something said merely to win praise, hence said insincerely and hypocritically, versus what the person all along believes and knows perfectly well that they believe. But the sad truth is that any teacher of the philosophy of mind, has had students who in their eagerness for praise and goodwill, not to mention good grades, have adopted their teacher's fancy new materialist theory of mind, for instance, that it is blood or wind, not in pretense and with hypocrisy, but sincerely thinking they do believe it. The people Lucretius is speaking of boast that because they already have the approved mortalist answer, they have no further need of philosophy teaching. This is superficiality rather than insincerity it doesn't take adversity to wring the veri voces from an ordinary hypocrite but even if you're not persuaded that this is the sort of case Lucretius has in mind here the distinction I'm looking for is undeniably present in text 17 I can look at that When you see a man chafing at his lot because after death he will either rot away with his body laid on earth or be destroyed by flames or the jaws of wild beasts, you may be sure that his words do not ring true, that deep in his heart lies some secret pang, however much he deny himself that he believes that he will have any feeling in death. For he does not, when he makes this denial, he does not grant what he professes, known dat quod promited, nor the grounds of his profession, nor does he remove and cast himself root and branch out of life, but all unwitting, unawares, unknowing, inscius in the Latin, unknowing, he supposes, something of himself to live on. The claim here is that the fear of death paradoxically presupposes a belief that one will not have ceased to exist one will be still there in the cremation fire or being eaten by animals. The paradox is dissolved by distinguishing what the man says he believes, that death is the end and that he won't feel anything, and what deep down he really believes, known that, quite prometed. He doesn't fully eliminate himself from life in his mind when he's imagining and thinking about these things, but in inscius, unawares, he pictures a bit of himself remaining after death. And in line 87, Lucretius, the poet, duly leaves the word ipsi right at the end of the line. Sort of image of what the picture is in the picture itself. We can now see, then, that thesis B, which is that in general people are unaware that they're driven by a fear of death, leads naturally to a further claim, thesis C, to the effect that belief and hence feeling lie deeper in the self, Than we realize. This is the Epicurean solution to the obstinacy problem. The people who think and say they accept that the dog is friendly and that death is nothing to us, but still cringe when the tail wags and still exert themselves for crowns and statues, these are people who do not yet believe in their heart of hearts where it counts that the dog is friendly and that death is not an evil they will have to endure. The corollary for attaining tranquillity should now be obvious. Look at texts 12 and 13. I've underlined these phrases. Accustom yourself to believe that death is nothing to us exercise yourself in these and kindred precepts, day and night, both by thyself and with him who is like you, then never, either in waking or in dream, will you be disturbed. Epicurus is promising you can get to a state where even in your dreams nothing disturbing comes, by practice, but where Pyrrho distinguished between practice on the one hand and argument on the other, Epicurus tells us to practice the arguments, meditatively uh, accustom yourself to believe this and that, exercising these precepts, these whole, there's lots of stuff in Epicureanism about memorizing and going through it all in your mind. Do all that until the all-important knowledge that we'll get from Epicurean physics has made its way deep enough into the soul for it to have its liberating effect. I'm inclined to say that Epicurus is the first philosopher to take seriously, or at least to attribute such importance to, the idea that people are driven by hopes and fears of which they may not be aware. Hopes and fears which lie below the level to which our ordinary reflective consciousness has access. I therefore think it no accident that Epicurus's account of happiness as tranquility, when one appreciates all that involves, looks much more like an account of happiness as we understand it, happiness in depth, than does any other ancient account of happiness. So I want to pursue a bit further, this concern with unconscious but not thereby non-rational elements in our personality. I can think of only two significant precedents, both in Plato's Symposium, and it may be no accident that in the Symposium, unlike the Republic and later works, Plato's psychology is still rationalistic and unitarian. Aristophanes's speech, has it that sexual desire is, unbeknownst to us, a desire to be reunited with our other half, the half we once were literally fused with. Diatima's speech has it that sexual desire is really a desire for immortality. We're seeking immortality when we desire to procreate children of the body or of the mind. But these precedents concentrate on one aspect, admittedly a large aspect, of human life. They give an unobvious explanation of Eros in its various manifestations. Epicurus offers an unobvious explanation of whole lives. For most people, their whole life is structured by this fear they're not aware of having. Which brings me to my last question, how does the fear of death have this effect? This question must be faced if the Epicurean is to make good the claim that fear of death explains much behaviour that has no obvious connection with death. We need an unobvious connection, or better, a connection that is not obvious to start with, but which, once it's pointed out, makes it obvious why people who are afraid of death behave as most of us do. It's not enough to say that people desire the wrong things and they are afraid of death, even if they deny it, we need to show that people desire the wrong things because they are afraid of death. Now in the Platonic precedence, we can reconstruct a chain of reasoning which could become conscious going along such lines as these. I want to go on forever after death. A child or poem is essentially me and will last after my death. Therefore, I should beget a child or create a poem. I want to reunite with my other half. He or she is my other half, therefore I should unite sexually with that person. The inferential connection between premises and conclusions here is a rational one, even if it's mediated by a false belief to the effect that a poem or child is me or that sexual union is reuniting as before. A belief which one would be doubtful about and probably would positively disavow if it became conscious compare in Freud's theory the belief that the teacher I'm rebelling against is my father ask the child is that your father of course the child will say no but the explanatory structure presupposes in some sense it's believed to be the same as the father now can Epicurus make the same sort of connection in his rather more complicated cases I'm not sure about the answer nor even whether one was worked out But my tentative suggestion is that the fundamental thought is this. Death is a condition of total deprivation coupled with being powerless to do anything about it. Uh, Look at text 16a for the last time. Um, The bit with wavy underlining in the A section Foul disgrace and biting poverty are often seen to be far removed from the pleasant settled life, and they are, as it were, a present dallying before the gates of death. It's like being dead, but before the time when you actually are dead. It's a state in which you'll lose the good things of life, you'll miss them, and you won't be able to do anything about it. There are many eloquent pages in Lucretius on the obstinate persistence of this picture of one's situation after death as a state of lack or need or desire, as if you still feel something when you've ceased to feel anything. If that is the mediating thought, we can see ambition and greed and the lust for power as attempts to protect one's future, to see to it that nothing, even death, will take away one's gains or make one unable to satisfy one's desires. It's as if wealth or power will conquer death, make one invulnerable and secure. This is a false belief, of course, which one would repudiate if it became conscious or one was asked about it. But because it remains unconscious, it can sustain the ambitious desires for power and honor which Epicurus derives from the fear of death. The way to dislodge it is to get the truths of atomic physics settled deep within the soul below even the level of conscious reflection. Then and then alone will one appreciate and rarely believe that true security lies within one's own soul. So it comes to this, that most of humanity's desires are desires that express our feelings of insecurity, which at bottom is the insecurity of the fear of death. That's why one thinks that honour is a good thing to have or that only a costly meal will do to entertain our friends. You can feel secure only if you come to see how easy it is to satisfy the desires that matter, that you get just as much pleasure that way, and how the only company you need is that of some like-minded friends. To get you into that state of mind, Epicurus offers to explain the universe to you, to show that it holds no terrors. But he does not offer this because he expects the knowledge to have an immediate effect. You have to practice and meditate before the message can take effect and you rarely believe it. When the belief is properly established, it will have restructured your entire personality. You will have a whole new system of beliefs which has driven out every last remnant of the mainstream cultural tradition you grew up in. For it's important to appreciate that for Epicurus, physics is not just, as it might be for us today, extra knowledge, knowledge of how the world works in atomistic terms. It is knowledge that will replace the inherited cultural construction of the world and humanity's relation to it. Compare the difference between advising someone to learn a foreign language, say Chinese, because it's good to know another language as well as one's own, and telling them to immerse themselves in Chinese so thoroughly that they cease to be competent in English. It is beside the point to say, as people often do, that educated people by the time of Epicurus or Lucretius were indifferent to and pretty sceptical about the myths that Epicurus spotlights, the the stuff about the threatening thunderstorms and lightning and stuff and the legends. The fact that they may have been pretty sceptical about this doesn't mean those myths and the culture they articulate have not had a formative influence on their souls an influence which remains deep within them as the source of the obstinacy described in 16b's reference to the veri vocates. Just so, the souls of many people in this audience have been shaped by Christian values, even if they are atheists or agnostics. It takes a lot of practice and meditation to eliminate the traces of upbringing and culture in the way that Epicurus proposed to do. What he promised to give you at the end of all that Is a transformation of your inner self, as a result of which you'll be able to enjoy life without obstacle or regret in a way that most people have no inkling of. And this idea of tranquility in depth, it seems to me, is something we today cannot fail to recognize as a conception of happiness. Thank you.